Today's episode of the Protected Cropping Podcast is brought to you by the New South Wales Local Land Service Early Need Recovery Program. The Early Need Recovery Program is part of a $150 million primary industry support package which is co-funded by the Australian New South Wales Governments. For more information about the program, please visit the Early Needs Recovery website. Welcome to the Protect Cropping Podcast. On today's episode, we're getting back to basics with Tony Bundock. Yeah, well, my name's Tony Bundock. I've been in the horticulture industry for, I think, just over 40 years now. So um, I've sort of been in, in pretty much all areas, but my main focus has been in the greenhouse industry. Um, originally, I started in uh, crop work in the UK's Lee Valley Green Cut Flowers. Uh, so I was basically managing a four-acre cut flower farm for a while there. Um, in 1990, I emigrated to Australia and basically uh, got more involved in training from that point onwards, um, but still obviously retained the interest in, in greenhouse work. Uh, and that sort of culminated with me eventually running Chisholm's uh, purpose-built training greenhouse. Um, and then after that, uh, took a trip back into industry, uh, worked for Power Plants Australia for three or four years um, and then they had a bit of a change of uh, structure uh, they didn't receive training as core business which was fine so i then stepped out on my own and uh, have been giving people instruction on how to use their previa based systems uh, and more sort of those general uh, hydroponic training as well so yes i've been around a, a while but um still enjoying the journey oh fantastic and you do a lot of training for new entrants into protected cropping or is it more sort of the glasshouse management side of things? Um, a bit of both, Sam, to be honest. Um, currently, I'm doing some work for a college up in Warrigal, um, so they have their own purpose-built greenhouse, which allows me to sort of, I suppose, provide that base training. Uh, but then the other side of it is uh, people have got um, specific systems like Breva who I can uh, help get more out of, basically. on. If you think of my role as the driving instructor rather than the mechanic, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. I love that. That's a great analogy. Today, we're getting back to basics. Would you like to give the audience a bit of an overview about why we use protected cropping systems and, and what's the point of, of protecting our crop? Yes, yeah, certainly. There's a number of reasons why you would go down that track. Um, probably the, the, the simplest one is that you're going to extend your cropping period uh, and you've got protection from outside elements. So when we're looking at protected cropping, you know, we're not instantly looking at very high-tech glasshouse structures. It could be as simple as uh, just a plastic uh, tunnel. Uh, but again, you're getting that protection from the elements. You're getting a slightly elevated um, temperature in your in your tunnel as well to assist your crops. But I suppose the, the big thing is that you're getting that longevity out of your crops as well so you can extend the cropping period that you, you have. It's not all um, green light and wonderful. Obviously, uh, you're creating a microclimate, which then has the potential to harbour perhaps more pests and diseases. But that's sort of part of the management strategy that you have to look at with, with protected cropping itself. But I think the big thing, if you said, well, I want to get into protected cropping, and I sort of say this to all the growers I work with, is I think the first thing is, yeah, look, check your market. You can be the best grower on earth, but if you can't actually... Um, realize a, a sale at a market on your produce well you know, you're, you're almost wasting your time so it's really important to have that market outlet clearly identified before you start getting into the the areas of protected cropping yeah that that identifying a market and growing a crop to fit a market need rather than growing the crop you want to grow is such a big um, important factor when you are looking to transition into any farming system really 
But that's one thing that new entrants really get stuck on is that they grow a great crop potentially with nowhere to sell it. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind is almost coming to the business with a market first and sort of market driven decision-making processes is key for success in this area. Sustainability is a big thing that we talk on and it's gathering a lot of steam over recent months and years. Protective cropping systems have a higher sustainability rating for a lot of different crops and a lot of different production styles. Is that true? I'd say so, yes. Um, certainly in, when we start looking at systems that are what we call closed, so we trap runoff water and reuse it, you know, we're looking at getting a 30 to 40% saving in our water usage um, and the same for fertilizer as well. So we're very much refining our processes that we use for growing. Uh, and we, we tend to keep a very strict eye on what our inputs are and again, what our outputs are as well. So it says when it does come to sustainability, the industry is very much switched on to that. And there's other programs that we're sort of now looking at as well. So when we're looking at reuse of growing media, you know, we're looking at possible composting uh, processes. Um, the industry has got a, a key issue to try and focus on at the moment in reuse of plastics. So if you've got an old plastic house, uh, it's no longer acceptable really to send that to uh, landfill or, or even burn it. Um, you know, we've really got to find a second use for that. And there's members of the industry are really working very hard to make that happen. So the uh, yeah, the industry is it's certainly one that's got, you know, a very sort of clear goal, I think, in terms of being more sustainable. Yeah. And as you say, there are challenges in terms of sustainability with, with greenhouses. It's not all sunshine, the rainbows. There is particularly around waste of, as you say, runoff, but also plastic waste and and crop waste as well. We touched on a little bit briefly around changing the microclimate, which changes the pest and disease control that you have within a greenhouse. Can you touch on just a few of the basic principles around IPM and, and how that is different in a protected cropping system as opposed to, say, a, an open field system? Uh, yeah, with an open field, I mean, you're, you're at the mercy of the elements to a certain extent and your pests can you know, sort of come and go as they please almost. Um, with a greenhouse, you you have got that closed environment. So if you haven't actually got pests, you know they anywhere they're going to come in probably through the vents or introduction with plants. So while that's fine, but if you do get an introduction of, of pests, they've really got the perfect climate for them to thrive in as well. So one of the the strategies that the industry has really been good at is uh, basically using an integrated pest management program. So we're really looking there at basically bringing in the good bugs to get rid of the bad bugs. Um, so we're, we're looking at that natural sort of predator process. It is a bit of a, um, a science. It's not something you can just say, well, I'll just shake in some predators and stand back and all will be good. You've got to monitor the actual thresholds of both your pests and your your predators as well. Um, but ultimately, one of the, the benefits of it is that your produce can be sold with that IPM tag associated with it, where we're using minimal amounts of chemical to control any pests that we might have in there. So it, it is a... Uh, certainly a, a sort of a, a big strategy to use um, and there's a range of different types of predators that we can use as well. I think the one thing with IPM you have to remember is that you still got to have a, a food source if you like for your your predators so to a certain extent you're going to put up with a little bit of the uh, the pest being present because if you totally control the pest then there's no food source for the predators and they're just going to die out. Yeah and it's it's all around I think people when they think of IPM they immediately think of bugs where in reality it's a cultural, biological and chemical control ecosystem. So it's it's all three working together trying to produce a 
pest and disease control mechanism for the whole crop over the lifetime of the crop, which is something that people forget about too. That's a, a really important thing to keep in mind. In terms of crops, so we're transitioning into protected cropping from open field. Are there easier, harder crops? Uh, what would you recommend for sort of first-time protected cropping growers? Well, look, I think we, we, we come back to that, the market thing. Obviously, that would drive that. Um, what are we trying to grow? Um, I, I suppose you could look at the, the, the crops you can grow. I mean, theoretically, you can grow anything hydroponically, but it's not quite that um, straightforward. Uh, if you're looking at a fairly sort of quick crop, like a leafy green, uh, that may well be a good area to start with. You'll get a, you know, a, a turnaround in, in summer of sort of eight to 10 weeks, potentially, um, which is, is fine. Uh, if you have a success, great. If you're not so successful, well, you can uh, sort of start again, I suppose, in some ways. But um, but it's really looking at, is it a short-term crop or is it more of a long-term crop like uh, a vine crop like tomatoes or cucumbers? So with tomatoes, you know, we're, we're seeing growers who are effectively running their crop for about 50 weeks of the year and then the, the other two weeks they spend pulling it out and replanting. So um, I think that's that's probably one of the decisions you have to, to look at. The the longer-term crop, all right, you've got a, a little bit perhaps more flexibility to make changes and see results, whereas the short-term, you know, you've, you've probably got to try and get it right fairly quickly. But... Um, I think it's it's obviously down to the the growers to what they want to, mm. to try and achieve, but um, I, I don't think there's a you know, an easy crop per se, and, and obviously it would depend where you are in the country as well. So, you know, have you yeah. got a better climate or, or is it colder climate as well? Yeah, and as you say, you've you've got to pick your production system to meet your crop too. Just because you have a greenhouse doesn't mean that you can grow, you know, those long-lived vine crops and then transition next week to growing strawberries. It's very much a designing the system to fit the crop type that you're looking at, which highlights the importance of having the market-driven research up front and, and understanding what the market needs and where you can sell your crop is so important because it, it affects all the downstream decisions that you make from there. So we're looking to transition into protected cropping. We've got a paddock that we've been growing veggies in for the last couple of years. What would you recommend a new grower get into in terms of dipping their toes in? Do they go out and get a loan and put up a million dollar glass house, or how does a person get into protected cropping? I think I think the uh, the sort of slow but sure method is probably the best way. I mean, yes, you, you can go and visit these big greenhouses and they look very impressive, but there's a a huge amount of investment as you said, um, and obviously you know the tied into that investment is is repayment. So if you make the massive investment then it doesn't work out um you know really going to be uh, struggling so I'd, I'd probably say to most growers look yeah start in a small way and you can always build from there probably have in mind where you think you might want to be down the track so don't just put up you know one single span uh, igloo and think well that's that's going to do me for the next 20 years yeah what is it you want to try and do so that may sway your choice between either a single span tunnel or a multi-span type structure that you might be able to use or expand into uh, but I think you know, for hydroponic growing, there's a number of systems that we can look at. Um, the industry really started with hydroponics with more of what we call a nutrient film technique system, which was gutters that basically flowed a nutrient system in all the time and the roots were constantly in that. Um, and we then sort of go across to the the other sort of hydroponic systems where we're really providing a nutrient-rich water source, but we're growing in a, a set medium. Now, that medium can be pretty much anything. Uh, the common ones are normally coir, uh, perlite's a medium that's being widely used as well at the moment. But a lot of new entrants, um, they use sawdust, um, sand even. So it's really just 
a substrate that will support the root growth of the plant and provide a, a base that you can add the fertilizer to. So that may well be another part of the decision making that you've got to look at as to where can I source my um, my growing medium from. A lot of the coir comes from overseas uh, and COVID really gave us a, a bit of a headache, well, not only with uh, exorbitant freight costs, but also actually getting hold of the material as well. Um, but those sort of pressures are now easing off a bit now. It's it's much easier to get hold of these mediums. Um, so you can start at, at that level. The the higher level uh, tends to use a product called Rockwall. It's um, its trade name's Growdown. It's effectively it's a roof insulation material. So it's an inert medium, but it's a sort of a an engineered product. So the the way that the fibres are stacked is um, is in quite a sort of a a, a keen order. Um, and so a lot of growers will use that as as well. But uh, I think in the early stages, I'd probably say, look, if you want to get into these systems, a simple dosing unit using a product such as Coir um, could be a good way to go. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting when you transition out of ground cropping and into protected cropping, the problems that you face are very different and the the manner of thinking is is a very different one. You mentioned dosing and irrigation management can you just run through a very basic dosing unit and how growers can manipulate or measure the fertilizer that they are providing to the crop because that's one of the big scary uh things when you transition into protected cropping is how do i know that i'm giving the crop what they need i think you if you go back and think well what's your growing media whatever you've got think of it as like as a sponge so if you put a sponge on a table and you added 10 mils of water every three minutes you get a lot of water into that sponge if you emptied a bucket of water onto that sponge you get a lot of runoff and probably not so much retained in the uh, sponge itself and that's pretty much the principle we use with hydroponic growing the the growing medium itself um, effectively we can increase or decrease the available water to the plant so we have to keep that in mind as what we're trying to do with that Um, we don't want the the growing media to be too wet but obviously we don't have to be too dry as well what we're doing is every time we irrigate, we're actually adding uh, dilute fertilizer, if you like, into that that uh, irrigation stream. And we have a recipe that we, we put together. So basically, every time we irrigate, we're giving the plant all its nutritional needs in one hit. So it's like a sort of a, almost like a medicine for the plant that we give it a dose every so often. But the way that we do that is that we normally have uh, two tanks. So our recipe is made up of in simple terms, an A bit, A tank, which we normally have calcium nitrate in, and the B tank, which we have all our other fertilizers in. Now, the reason that we have them separate is that if we put all the calcium nitrate together with the other fertilizers in a concentrated form, we'd think the whole thing would basically solidify and clog up the system. So if we blend them in small amounts or diluted amounts, uh, they mix quite nicely and that's not a problem. In, in simple terms, we're dosing our concentrate into our water at a 1 to 100 rate. But to do that, we could do that um, physically in a large tank and just add a certain volume of water, a certain level of fertilizer. But what we tend to use is units that every time the irrigation operates, it picks up the A solution and the B solution and doses that into the main water stream. Now, you can do that in uh, simplistic terms. Um, You can have a a unit which is known as a, a dosatron pump. And the dosatron effectively will uh, it's like a, a tea piece almost if you think in a water stream as water flows past it it operates a small pump inside the unit and that sucks the solution into the main stream so from a starting point of view dosatrons are a really 
a good little unit. They're not that expensive, um, but they will give you a so level of control input into your fertilizer usage. But as we get um, into the, suppose the sort of higher level, or you want to be even more accurate, um, there's commercial dosing units that we can run, which basically link into a computer program. So we can set the, the, the amounts that we want to have in there. We can set our flow rates and we then get a very accurate amount of fertilizer. So what we're looking at doing is providing an irrigation supply that has a set EC. So for tomatoes, example, that can't be quite high. It could be something like three, an EC of 3.1. And then we're looking at a predetermined pH of that solution. And the reason we do that is that if we've got our pH running somewhere between 5.8 and 6.3, that sort of parameter, uh, that's really when the plant can pick up most of the nutrients that are all available to the plant. But if our pH varies off, goes more alkali or more acid, the actual availability of those nutrients to the plant isn't so great. So we're, we're really sort of focusing on keeping that pH um, nice and sort of central. How we check that, um, we have a thing we call a titration test. So we basically take 10 litres of our fresh water, we then add 100 ml of your A tank, 100 ml of your B tank, stir it all together, and then test that with an EC and pH meter. With your EC, if your target EC is 3.1, but your your test comes up at 3.7, that's fine. You've got plenty of reserve in the tanks. Uh, but if your EC comes up at 2.6 and you're chasing 3.1, you haven't got enough fertilizer uh, in your tanks. If you like, so you have to bulk up the the amount in the tanks. With the pH, if it's uh, looking at, you do the test and you're chasing 5.8, but you get a reading of 4, you've got to add an alkali to that solution to bring the pH up. And conversely, if your pH is 7, you've got to add an acid to bring that down. So with those changes, uh, a dosing unit will enable you to do that quite simply. Yep. And that's just one of those things that you have to manage on a daily basis as you're doing your irrigation sounds complex and confusing but it, it's really not that bad once you get into it no it's um the titration test itself um i can say normally I'd, I'd recommend people to do that every time that you add fertilizer or if your water source changes um and it's a, it's a very simple test very, very quick and easy to do but it's a good ready reckoner so that you know that your system's performing correctly um if you've got a dosing unit that's linked to a computer if your dosing levels change and for some reason your pH drops or your EC drops, um, there's alarm levels in that system that will enable you to be told the system will alarm it, ring your phone, it'll do all these tricks. Um, but it will keep you informed what's going on. I think the, the big thing with um, the irrigation when we're looking at hydroponics, I mean, it's the key part of it, but it is something that you've really got to uh, look at every day. You don't have to sit glued to the computer for eight hours a day, but you've really got to make sure that that's performing correctly. And not only in the application, but then we start looking at, we want to get a certain amount of drain out of that growing material. So we need to monitor that as well. Yeah, definitely. And that goes throughout the whole irrigation system, all the way down to the micro drippers. You've got to make sure that there's no clogs or leaks or anything like that. So, um, it is, it is a bit of management, but it's a different kind of management to what we'd see in, in open fields. You just touched on water. Does water quality play a big role in pulling this concoction together? And um, yes, it's a. It's probably I'd say before we, you know, we've we've wandered off talking about systems, but um, when we're looking at initial sort of setups, your water source has got to be paramount. You've, you've got plenty of options, um, but 
if we said, you know, what are those options? Well, you can take your water out of a, a river or a stream. Um, obviously, you have to have a license for that. But the only thing I would say with that is that you've just got to be a little bit careful about what might happen upstream. Uh, because if someone upstream dumps a load of rubbish in there or something, you know, you're going to pick that water up. So while it, it can be a good source, and sometimes it may be the only source, um, you've just got to be very careful about what's happening upstream as well. Bore water is another option. Uh, the only thing with the bore is that you really got to check the salinity of that. Uh, I know some growers in the sort of Werribee area, they use bore water, but it, it, it comes out with a sort of massively high salt content to the point that they've now got desalination plants to take that salt out of their, their water. So that's another sort of area to look at. Um, dams are a common use of, of water. Um, so again, while that can be um, a really sort of useful source, you've just got to be a little careful in terms of where that dam is being fed from. So where is that source water coming from? Um, especially after, say, like a large downpour you know, or a storm, you might get a lot of um, silt and rubbish washed into that water. So you have to be a little bit careful on that. The Probably one of the most common sources of water that people use is actually harvesting water off their greenhouse roof. So whenever it rains, they've got that uh, linked into either their dam or a, a tank. Uh, so that's a really good sort of idea as well. When you're looking at um, your water needs, um, I normally say it's a really good idea to make sure that you, you actually do some calculations so that you've got storage for at least three days worth of water. So if there is a drama or a disaster, um, you, you're not forced into having to see your crop die literally in front of you. You've got those three days up your sleeve um, to make that happen. I mean, if, if it's complete disaster and you can't source water anywhere else, yes, you can buy it in. But obviously, it's an expensive option to to go down that track. So, having that sort of uh, thinking about how much water you might use, it again, depend on the crop you're going to have and what you're trying to do. But um, I think you know, a good rule of thumb is having that three days of of reserve in your in your pocket so that uh, you're not going to come unstuck. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, there are options to treat the water with protected cropping. One of the benefits is that we are so water use efficient that we can manipulate and change the the water coming in to an extent with filters and UV and all the rest of it. So you do have options, um, but obviously water has a massive impact in in availability of chemicals and, and fertilizer throughout the system. We've spoken about the systems. I uh, just want to touch on a little bit about the business planning side of things. And we've, we've spoken about market first. How much planning does go into setting up these systems and what sort of business plan do you recommend new growers get into? Do we need to have a full-blown 10-page document or what What can we get away with in terms of transitioning in? Um, I think you, you unfortunately have to bite the bullet and do the full plan. Um, you know, this this is a business, this is your income um, and there will be nothing worse than starting the process than getting halfway through and finding, oh, I didn't account for this or something's happened which actually could stall the whole project so you know i'd really recommend you know, spending a lot of time making sure you've got this right um probably even taking that plan and discussing it with um with others just especially those that in the industry that have been around a while they might be able to pick up some issues for you but yeah certainly i would i would really look at that plan as being probably one of the key points before you even put a plant in the growing media at all you, know, you want to make sure that you've got that uh, that whole plan organized um, in terms of once you start looking then at, well, structures, uh, there's another number of companies in Australia that willingly assist you in getting your system up and running. And again, they're, while these companies, they're, they're obviously there for 
you know, to their own commercial needs. But I would have to say that, you know, if you choose one of the uh, the bigger companies, yes, okay, it will cost you some money, but you're almost guaranteeing a, a result because these guys have been doing this an awful long time and they have the, the knowledge and the experience and the background to probably point out a few problems to you as you go along as well. So I'd mm-hmm. certainly consider you having... Uh, getting contractors in for that rather than just saying, well, I'll buy all the equipment and set it up myself and see what happens. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the the defining benefits of a protected cropping system is that you're not going at this alone. There is a whole suite of agronomists, resellers, government researchers. There's a whole ecosystem of people behind the scenes willing to help, including, you know, industry groups like uh, the Hydroponic Farmers Federation and Protected Cropping Australia, as well as your local um, government agencies and so there's there is help out there we don't need to tackle this alone and um there's there's things and, and resources there for you to try and get the best out of these systems in terms of training what sort of training is available and do you think that formal training via a certification or a TAFE course or any of the other providers is that necessary when you're transitioning in or i think if you're an existing grower probably not i think um Probably some sort of specialised top uh, training is is good. Um, if you look at how trainings run, um, training within a TAFE course is what's known as accredited, and that tends to be you have to do the whole course. And the courses sometimes are made up of a number of generic subjects. So you want to go and learn about hydroponic growing, but your certificate three in horticulture might also include plant ID and pruning and a number of sort of more um, landscape or gardening related subjects. So it is possible just to go and do single courses. Um, there's providers that provide, you know, some sort of specialist four or five day courses. Um, so they're certainly worthwhile um, attending, having a look at that. Uh, and we've seen, uh, I do work with um, New South Wales local land services and, you know, help them provide training as well. Um, but again, like so the training I do is, is quite specialist to systems rather than, uh, I suppose, generic stuff. Um, but it's, it's probably one of the, the challenges of the industry. There is actually a, a training package for protected cropping. But one of the problems that the colleges have had is that the funding that goes with it is is very limited compared to running a generic certificate through horticulture. You'll, you'll see a lot of, in Victoria, a lot of TAFE courses all there for free, but they tend to be the generic ones, not the uh, the highly specialised ones. So it, it is, it's it's an area that we're sort of trying to work with, um, you know, my involvement with with PCA and HFF as well, um, is to you know put on training that's uh, useful for growers. But um, the other thing that we have to try and do as well is to make sure that we get that training at a time that's suitable to the growers. Um, you know, they're busy during the day, so you know, you've got to look at running these things at a time that, that suits them as well. But events such as you know, PCA conference, um, there'd be a whole host of different um, subjects come up there as well. So. If you're looking to get in there, I would say that's a, certainly an event that's probably worth a look to as well. Yeah, you mentioned our conference, which is the 17th to the 20th of July in Brisbane. I believe there will be a Protect Cropping 101 workshop run by your esteemed self, is that correct? It is, yes, and myself and some other members of the industry. So uh, it's a great opportunity just to come and you know, almost really get back to basics. Um if you, you come along and you, you start hearing things that you know already, well, that's good. That's reinforcement. But um, say, but, it, but it is designed to really help people come into the industry and, and have a, a greater awareness of what they're getting into. You know, I think there's there's always that danger that people say, what's well, hydroponic growing? You know, it's 
it's going to massively increase my crop amounts. So if you look at um, tomato crops, like long-term crops, you know, we've got growers now sort of hitting the 100 kilo per square metre target, which you know, sounds fantastic, but then you know, there's an awful lot of investment that goes into that. Um, and you know, we come back to that fact, you can be growing that volume, but if you haven't got the market, well, you're going to be eating tomatoes for a long, long, long time. So, and there is a lot of art to getting that that level of, of yield out of your crop. It's not all science and, and numbers. There is a, a fair level of, of finesse required to produce crops of that quality. Yeah, there is, Sam. And I think you know one of the things that people have to be careful of when they're coming into the industry is that you think, well, there's all this high-tech equipment and I can, you know, I can drive a computer, I can make everything happen. Well, the, the computer's just there as an aid to you as the grower. You know, when, I, when I do training for people and they... So, you know, what should I be looking at on my computer? I always say, well, look, the first thing is go and walk around your crop. That's really going to tell you what's happening. Uh, the computer will only relay information that is being recorded by it. And again, we don't have sensors in every plant. So you know, the sensor that might be showing you how moist the growing media is, it might just is, is in one slab out of thousands. So you, know, you really need to have a look at your crop and see what's going on. But yeah, that sort of gaining that experience and and look, probably, you know, we've, we've all made a few mistakes in our time, but learning from those is probably just as important as you know, getting it right 100% of the time. So, Yeah. No, that sounds great. Thank you for taking us through the basics of protected cropping, Tony. As we said, there'll be more training available at the upcoming protected cropping conference in Brisbane on the 17th and 20th of July. And we will also be running additional Back to Basics podcasts with Tony going through some of the topics that we discussed today in a little bit greater detail but thanks for your time today tony and looking forward to seeing you up in brisbane thanks sam good to talk thanks for listening be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all the latest in protected cropping news 